week of October 3rd, 2021, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 557, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jace Sperling reich And on the picket line, I'm Michael Gilt. Strike! 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 Oh, God, who now? Are you in France or something? I don't know. <laughs> and by the way, I love France, but it's just a joke because every time I go to France, there's a strike, and then they lose my luggage, and well, it's a long story. But uh, the Yahtzee members have voted... And they have said, yes, they are ready to strike a 98% strike authorization vote, as everyone listening to this podcast this, this already is just knows. In? This it's is just, just in for in? us, right? But okay. they will know that once our show airs. So they have authorized a strike. They have major concerns. They need to get proper royalties and payments on streaming shows. Acting well, like a streaming and, show is a charity case isn't going to fly anymore. Not when Disney Plus and HBO Max and Netflix are the big boys in town. And so all the people who help make these great shows that we watch and enjoy, they need to be paid properly. And acting like you deserve a discount is not going to fly. So the studios can send us into a strike or they can face the reality that that's where all the money is. And they got to stop this BS and start paying everybody what they deserve. No, that's, wait a second. That's what to, they need to, to do. Just to explain to to our listeners and say the United Kingdom or India or Malaysia, where I know we have listeners, and I'm not joking around, I know we have listeners in those uh, territories. Of course, IATSE is the International Association of Electricians and Technicals. You know, it's basically uh, all the people behind the scenes. It's the cinematographers, that, the makeup, the hair, the, yes. the the gaffer, the best everybody. Everybody. There's also so, Teamster Union involved in making movies, so they don't cover everyone. There's Teamsters. Correct. They represent casting directors, for example, and, and the truckers uh, and people who strike sets to a degree, I believe. But yeah, and there's also the creative people, and that's where IATSE comes in. Right, and I would tell you that if you loved The Queen's Gambit, if you, well, actually, that no, that was shot in the U.S. If you loved some streaming show, like, uh, well, Ted Lasso is the U.K., but uh, if you love a streaming show, and it's shot in the U.S., that show, whether streaming or on television or even a movie, will not be allowed to continue production, period. So it, right, it, it to would. say this is a huge deal, it's a huge deal. Well, it's not because when they launched streaming services, the studio said, oh, we're really trying to start the streaming. Can you give us a discount? We can't pay your normal rate. We really need help here. Just like they did when they said, oh, we're trying to launch this compact disc thing. Can you give us a break? We're trying what about to launch DVDs? This, we're trying to launch this cable channel. Could you, could you give us a break? We're trying to launch DVD. Could you help us out here? Could you help a buddy? And for some reason, the unions always cave to these corporate behemoths. Say, oh, yeah, sure. We'll help you with this new nascent business. And they give them a big discount discount on the rates that they charge. And then when the business flourishes, the unions say, well, okay, well, you know, you got to start paying us regular rates. And they're like, no, we couldn't possibly. So it's a very, there are also lots of bad working conditions, working crew members to death, six to, you know, multiple days in a row over time, exhausting them. There's lots of bad working conditions. You can see it all if you go to IATSE's, you know, Twitter feed and see all the stories that people share. It's not just wanting more money, but they're not asking even for more money. They're asking for the money that they have fought for and deserved over the years that they give a discount on. So this is not I, a complicated issue. I think we should issue. go on strike. Yeah, I think we should. We should go on yeah. strike. We should. The Fuji's didn't go on strike. They reunited. This Fuji said, "The big hip hop group. We are getting back together to celebrate the X anniversary of you know our our own one and only studio album. We're going to get together. We're going to perform. We're like, yeah, right. <laughs> Lauren Hill's not showing up. And by God, they actually showed up and performed. They started three hours late, but they did it. So miracles can happen. And let's hope 
that they can avert a strike because the people are ready to strike. Every other union has said we are ready to support you. Yes, let's have a strike vote. Yes, let's stand firm because this streaming stuff has to end. You do not get a discount when your show is being made for Netflix or Disney+. Plus. That's nonsense. But there's well, other that, stuff that, to That's going to be a theme. That's going to be a theme throughout the rest of our show, in fact. Is it really? Well, tell us what's going to so. happen on our show. Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are back in the saddle again. You know, actually, that doesn't really sound very fallish, does it? No, not really. Well, anyway, I'm back. Michael's back. And we've got some news to share. It's National Day in China, so movies are setting off fireworks at the Chinese box office. The pandemic is playing havoc with Broadway and the West End's desire to reopen. But at least the Tonys happened. Hey, plus Johnny Depp is suddenly very concerned about cancel culture. I wonder why. On Inside Baseball, we discuss how CAA has gobbled up ICM and is now ready for its close-up on Wall Street. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. And in the obituaries, Michael will explain how he almost saw LaBelle in concert. He's also going to tell me who LaBelle is. because oh, I didn't... No, really? I, Lady I Marmalade? Lady Marmalade. Oh, Patty, Patty LaBelle. Patty LaBelle. Nona Pat, Hendrick, I thought LaBelle Sarah was like Dash. the full name. I thought LaBelle was the full name, like like Madonna. You know, like you only need one name if you're named LaBelle. How, how nah. many LaBelles could there be? Anyway, uh, first, speaking of, speaking of Michael, as always, we're going to turn it over to Michael, our entertainment journalist extraordinaire, and he's going to fill us in on last week's box office. That's right, and we're looking at box office around the world. All the headlines in North America were about James Bond and Venom, but the biggest movie by far just from one territory, essentially, grossing double what James Bond grossed in multiple territories is China's The Battle at Lake Changjin. I'm sorry, I should have looked at the pronunciation. It's a historical war drama set in Korea when China was helping Korea fight back the Americans in North Korea. It's a massive $200 million budgeted movie. It may be the most expensive film made in China to date. And it grossed what it needed to do, its budget. It grossed at $235 million since opening up on Thursday. So, And by the way, I'm, I'm looking here uh, on, my, on my list here. I'm seeing it opened in China on, let me just count all the screens. Oh, all of them. It opened <laughs> on all the screens. That's right. It's National Day in China, which means uh, there are lots of movies opening up, as we've seen in other periods of the year. It's a blackout period, which is why Dune is not opening up until October 22nd in China, along with its day and date release in North America and HBO Max. So this movie had the the field to itself practically, along with another big Chinese film, My Country, My Parents, which is the third in a very successful series. Here's interesting something. The Battle Lake Shangjing was filmed by three different directors. They all took part in three of the biggest directors in China, frankly. It's uh, uh, Shen Cage, Hark Su, and Dante Lam. I really messed up. But I, I'm thinking of Tor, Tor, Tor. That was filmed by multiple directors. Or yeah. there are some, you know, How the West Was Won. We've had big movies with multiple directors taking part. And then the other movie, which is the third in a series, that too was filmed by multiple directors. Four directors each d- directed individual portions of that. Uh, you know, it's an anthology, really. My Country, yeah. My Parents. That made $91 million. And then when you look at the rest of box office in China, like a dozen movies are opening up this week. But the Chinese box office is starting to look a lot like the North American box office because you had two big winners and everybody else lost. 
two, three years ago when we would cover the box office for a big holiday, you'd see like four or five or six or seven movies that did really, really well. This time there were just two winners and everybody else was a loser. You have to go down to like $4 million. Uh, you know, Dear Tutu, Little Candy, but Man, I wonder, Gold Beak. These are animated films for families. None of them made over $4 million. A Holdover, Cloudy Mountain, a disaster flick. That fell hard. It still made $7 million this week, but that's a big fall from one week earlier. That's at $65 million total. So basically, it was two movies and nobody else had a chance. I, I do wonder, though, if uh, a part of that is there just weren't movies to show because uh no you know, no the no no they had tons of movies opening up they had s like seven or eight or ten movies opening up but okay. nobody else clicked now those little animated films look like cheapy family films yeah but i think the box office is moving towards just having one or two big winners each episode each you know session rather than spreading the wealth around like you can sometimes see that's the story in china the battle of lake shangjing made 235 million dollars that's a lot of money at number two around the world is james bond with no time to die 119 million dollars guess what it costs 300 million dollars to make maybe 250 maybe 300 i buy it because it's a big franchise daniel craig's been there for all these movies it has to be a very expensive film. So they need to make like $900 million worldwide traditionally to be seen as a winner. Clearly, in this pandemic era, it's a winner already. It's $119 million. It's opening up in North America on Friday. But what would it have made in regular times? Who knows? But we'll see how big it can get. Well, I can tell you that it opened as big as Spectre internationally. Internationally. Yeah. Right, but uh, it won't necessarily have the same legs because there won't necessarily be the repeat business. There correct. won't necessarily, you know, all that stuff is going to affect it. But you're right; it's done very well in the territories it opened up. Let's hope it keeps. It's going. also two hours and forty three minutes. Oh so my repeat. goodness! But that that doesn't matter, right? In terms of theaters can accommodate movies of that length now. Oh, I don't no, really no, think no. that's I mean, a like, hold back to making box office. No, I'm talking about back to living life. Like if you've got <laughs> two hours and 43 minutes that you can spare once, do you have it twice? <laughs> so a Chinese that. war epic, James Bond, and then Venom 2 or Venom, Let There Be Carnage. Directed by Andy Serkis, Gollum. He's becoming quite the director. This is his biggest hit to date. It grossed $104 million on its opening week. Mostly then, in North America. Mostly oh, yeah, it made 90 minutes. Yeah, it hasn't opened up big overseas yet, so it's doing really well in North America. My Country, My Parents, that made 91 million. Then Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings, that made another $24 million worldwide. That's approaching the $400 million mark. That will, I think, triple its budget. It maybe cost $150 million. We know they spent a lot to market it, relatively speaking, but that could at least triple its budget. It would have done a lot better in you know regular times but that's that could be a pure success story let's hope so then there's dune that made another 23 million dollars that passed the 100 million dollar mark overseas here in north america it opens up on october 22nd day and date with hbo max another film that's probably a hit is the adams family 2 this is an animated film the original one cost about $24 million to make so i assume this one did as well it opened up to 18 million dollars then The Sopranos flick, The Many Saints of Newark, that's a prequel to The Sopranos TV show. That opened up and made most of its money in North America, but it also opened up in some other territories. So it made about $7 million. That's not going to have any legs at all. Anybody who wants to watch it can watch it on HBO. Uh, the reviews aren't great. I don't think it's going to work. Paul, you know, I went to school, uh, mm -hmm. to, to school with the director of that. 
mm-hmm. uh, film, and he's directed some great television uh, uh-huh. and some. You know, I, I'd have to go back and see what movies he's directed, but I, I've always known him, Alan Hunter, as a as a great. Uh, I think Alan. Uh, now I'm forgetting his name, of course. Uh, but good friend, uh, good friend of yours, huh? No, no. I mean, I went to school with him. I he was way ahead of me. Let's put it that way. Uh, and still, by the way, apparently is way ahead of me. But I, I heard, uh, I, I read a joke on on uh, Twitter that basically said, "So the audience that watched a prequel to a TV show decided not to go to the movie theater to see the prequel for a TV show. Like they they watched the TV show on TV, then they made a movie out of it, and they decided to watch it on TV. What?" I, I, I botched Is that the joke, That's a joke? <laughs> it, was, it was kind of funny when I read it, but basically they were pointing out that it's based on a TV show that everybody watched on TV. So, of course, rather than go to the movies, they were able to watch this movie on a TV. So that's what they did. Okay. So Alan Taylor is his name, Taylor, not Alan Hunter. Taylor. He worked yeah. on Game of Thrones. He did seven episodes on Game of Thrones. He did do Thor, The Dark World. He was the director of that film. Uh, he did an episode of Boardwalk Empire, Bored to Death, uh, three or four episodes of Mad Men, uh, did nine episodes of The Sopranos, a couple, One Big Love, a couple episodes of Sex in the City. So he, clearly he's been a TV uh, journeyman, won some very good shows. He did Terminator Genesis, and, uh, which was not good, and now The Many Saints of Newark. And he's uh, on top of Interview with the Vampire. He did the pilot episode for that new TV series launch, and he's on top of Ringworld which is a classic sci-fi novel and we'll have not sci-fi probably fantasy I should say and we'll have to see what he does with that but so he's got a good track record in television but you know Thor the Dark World and the Many Saints of uh, of Newark those are big steps up for him so uh, good luck to him hopefully the you know the movie will be seen as a success story as far as what he did Paul Patrol Well and I'll try a- and be more successful with my jokes in the future <laughs> please do Paul Patrol is a bit of a success that hit 117 million dollars worldwide but one movie that has not done well is Dear Evan Hansen uh, suddenly all the love for the show on Broadway people who saw it in the movie theater the critics were like oh, I don't know about this show there were problems with the show problems with the book problems with the casting of Ben Platt they were too you know, beholden to having the guy who did such a great performance on Broadway, having him be in the film, even though he was oh too old for Broadway seven years ago. You can get away with it on stage, playing a high school student. You know, you can get away with that, but not on film. But that's not the real problem. It's really the book and other issues. But that movie has made $12 million so far worldwide. Uh, everything else, there's not much going on. Free Guy is making money. Candyman has tripled its uh, reported budget at $75 million. And Clint Eastwood's Cry Macho has fallen hard and fast. That's at $10 million worldwide. It's just made $1 million last week. Not doing so great, but there is good news. Cinemas in Somalia have reopened. Some of India is coming back online October 22nd. And big films that have been sitting and waiting for the reopening of cinemas in India, one of the big markets in the world, they are locking in their dates. There's a cricket film going up against a remake of Forrest Gump. Who knew an Indian remake of Forrest Gump coming in the holidays? That's interesting. Uh, And in the indie film market, The Eyes of Tammy Faye has passed $2 million, and The Card Counter, the Paul Schrader flick, passed $3 million. So there is. T10, the the Con Palm Palm Door winner, yes, that opened up to a. Decent numbers, almost $1,000 per screen, which in this world works out as uh, not bad. It opened on 500 screens, though, which was kind of. Interesting. That's a big, big opening. Well, they just figure, yeah, if they can get anybody to come out, they got to do it right away. And, and, then they, and you know, there's, the screens are available because there's just not that much content out there. 
So I think that's also what's going on. So to 10, I imagine that will fall hard and fast. I doubt that will get great word of mouth and, you know, have legs, but we shall see. It's nutty. I'm tempted to see it. It's playing here in Birmingham. Uh, oh, I would like, go see it. It's it's. I didn't. I've never liked any movie by that director. So do oh, I really want to risk hate my life to see this one? I don't think so. <laughs> but there's lots of things I might risk my life for. We got a lot of remakes and reboots. Babylon Five is coming back at the CW. That was a great sci-fi series where they sort of mapped out the storyline from beginning to end for five seasons. That was their plan, like a five, six season arc. They had that plan in from the beginning, and they actually did it. You know, planning that for a movie back in those days was crazy. But for they TV actually, show, you mean? Right. They actually TV. pulled it off. Nobody was doing that really at that time. Yeah. And the creator pulled it off. And I thought, why are they remaking? And CW, it's going to be all like teenagers. But the original guy behind the show is involved in this reboot. So, hey, that's interesting. And the Lost Boys is coming back. Maybe it'll be even gayer this time rather than just subtext. Netflix bought all the works created by Roald Dahl. Like, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Willy Wonka, Matilda, and all that stuff. Did you think that was a big deal? Because I thought, well, that's interesting. But a lot of that stuff has been exploited already. And other people own the rights for quite a while to that stuff. So if there's money to be made on it, it's probably going to be a long time coming. You're going to have to let all those other rights expire before you can make a Wonka TV show. Or, you know, I feel like there's not a lot to exploit that hasn't already been exploited. So they can go back into the well again. But you know, how many more versions of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory do we need? I think they need to do a Veruca Salt spinoff. There you go. Now you're talking. And here's, is this a remake? Is this a reboot? Or is this a show just getting another season? One of the, I thought the headline was wrong. It said Law and Order, another season for Law and Order. I'm like, oh, you mean, you mean SVU? Like, no, Law and Order. The original Law and Order is getting a season 21. And they haven't announced the actors or the release date or how many episodes, but Sam Waterston has said he's been ready for years to do this. He's just sitting at home. He's ready. So it, I imagine Sam Waterston will be back on the, on the case. Law and order getting another season. Does this count as the 21st season? You know, scholars will have to debate this because, you know, Law and Order was tied with Gunsmoke as the longest running hour-long drama of all time. And then Law Order SVU passed them both. But now here comes Law and Order again, ready to keep going. It's crazy. Well, you know, Sam Watterson has always hated Homer Simpson. They've always had a big uh, <laughs> grudge match. So I know he's, oh, going, my... he's gunning for Homer. Please, somebody get I'll Fly Away on a streaming service. Northern Exposure, <laughs> I'll Fly Away. They're trapped in hell and they can't get visible to the world. But you know what also can't be seen is Broadway or the West End. We, we felt like Broadway and the West End were coming back a little too soon. It looks like they're doing okay. Everybody's wearing masks in, in North America. Everybody is vaccinated on Broadway. That will make people feel a little more comfortable about coming back to see, I don't know, Sperling, the David Byrne musical with your best friend, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you have yeah, tickets? I, I, when are you booked? I, I have to actually go search for them. I think I do. I think it's December sometime. We'll find out. <laughs> okay. But so shows have come back and then shows are shutting down. Aladdin had to shut down for two weeks till October 10th because there was a COVID breakout among the cast. In the West End, they have a Back to the Future musical in London. They had to delay the opening of that show because the lead, Roger Bart, has COVID. So I hope they can pull it off. You know, people make big plans. It's not like a movie where if you had to shut it down for a few days, you'll be okay. Or maybe the weekend box office, you could, you know, go see the movie next week. People make plans to go see a Broadway show. They come to New York, 
they're there, they're ready. If the show's not open that day, they can't just go back next week and see it another time. So this is really hard on the people who bought tickets, but they're doing the best that they can. So it, it's not easy. But we're doing the well, best. Well, you know, we- nobody <laughs> is safe. Uh, Johnny Depp told me, told us this. Uh, nobody is safe at all. <laughs> I, I don't know if he was talking about COVID, but I saw him speaking at the San Sebastian Film Festival. And he was like, look, man, I don't know. You guys are. Nobody is safe. <laughs> oh, I am, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't read the rest of the sentence. From cancel culture. I'm sorry. I thought. <laughs> I am liking uh, Movie Maker Magazine and the week, the daily the daily newsletter that they have. Um, I think it's a lot of fun. And they made fun of, of Johnny Depp as well. Um, just like uh, just like we are right now. Johnny Depp is at the San Sebastian Film Festival speaking to a world full of press with a platform as big as anyone has ever had saying, oh, you know, uh, cancel gets terrible when people can't speak out and be heard. <laughs> it's like obviously with himself in mind, but it's like you're actually you're not that canceled, Johnny. So, uh, you know, how does I think this work? He- you know, I, I, did you actually watch the video of him from that festival? Uh, no, but I agree with Tim Malloy, who mocked him. Um, you know, he was trying to explain. He was asked a question about, uh, you know, about he's, this whole He's a incident. man that has faced cancel culture, and he's decrying it because he's a man who's found in court to have been justified but described as a wife beater. And he's not happy about that. But no, he has not suffered. He has, he has, in the world stage, speaking to the world's press all together, and he's saying, oh, this cancel culture is really bad. Well, it hasn't affected you, has it, Johnny? You just picked uh, up you an know, award. He, he, would, he, would say, he would say, the award got me very little, and I had to, I was asked to resign from a franchise film by Warner Brothers. So I would say it has affected him. Because <laughs> he doesn't get every job he ever wants? No, no, he was he already not, in the film. Johnny Depp has not been canceled. Johnny Depp is a wife beater, and people don't want to work with a wife beater. That would, that's not cancel culture. Cancel culture is, oh, I don't like you, so I'm going to make you disappear. If someone's a wife beater, how many jobs do you think they're going to get? Well, I would say this. I, I, he's not I would being read that canceled. opinion. He's not being canceled. He is being found out in the court of public, in a court of being justifiably described as a wife beater. And dis- and a studio behind a family film thinks, I don't really want a wife beater as one of the lead actors on my film. That's not really good for business. And so they're saying, we don't want to work with you. That's not cancel culture. That's a person paying a price for something that they've done. Do you well, understand do you think the Chris difference? Cuomo- Yes. yes, I do. I, I, I do also think uh, you might, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Johnny Depp's U.S. case, but that's another story. Yeah. Uh, what do you think will happen with Chris Cuomo? Well, CNN is being very quiet. Chris Cuomo, of course, got in a lot of trouble for how he worked with his brother to help him craft his media message when dealing with women who were credibly and accurately describing him as a as a sexual harasser. And now we turns out, ah. Guess what? A former producer at ABC News says Chris Cuomo sexually harassed her. And we have the proof that he did it because it's his own email apologizing for what he did. They were at a public event and he grabbed her ass and said, oh, hey, I can do this now that you're no longer my boss because she had moved on. Her husband saw it. Chris Cuomo apologized in an email to her confirming the incident, but said it wasn't sexual. Right. No. Okay. Maybe it's just a power grab. Maybe it's just you know showing your ability to, to humiliate her in public and thinking you can get away with it, but it doesn't have to be sexual, meaning you want to have sex with her. It is inappropriate and it's wrong. And I just, I don't know what what goes very quiet. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I just, what goes through, 
people's minds. I can get away they... with it. And they've seen other people get away with it. And he's in a culture where people get away with it. And so men have done it for centuries. And oh why would God. that change now? Yeah, no, it's, it's, you know, vile. I can't imagine what would make you think you could grab somebody's ass, male or female, why you think you should be able to humiliate or embarrass or shame somebody, but you like that power and authority and you do it. But it doesn't always work. Look at R. Kelly convicted of racketeering in a court of law, ready to pay a price. Uh, this has been a person with horrific allegations for quite a while. Very, very hard to get these cases proven in a court of law. Look how long it's taken for justice for the women and men, at least one man, that suffered under R. Kelly's behavior. So that's good to see. It looks like he's guilty. We certainly have countless evidence of number of people coming forward, and now he's paying a price as well. So social justice takes a while. So did the Tony Awards. <laughs> I know. Like, I, I thought, wait a second. When I saw that on CBS, I was like, is that the Tony Awards taking place right now? And I think they didn't they like push all the awards to like online. And well, they, well, yes, they, they did. And that's the big question is some people thought this was brilliant and the way forward. The Tony Awards had a, I think, a three hour or four hour ceremony on a streaming service, Paramount Plus, where they handed out almost every award. And then in prime time, because it was an unusual two year period where the Tonys didn't happen, they had a Broadway is back special where they performed performances from lots of different shows, not just the Tony nominees. And they said Broadway is back and celebrated Broadway and talked about Broadway and handed out the three big awards, uh, best revivals and best, uh, best new play. musical and best new play. So some people thought this was the cat's meow. A lot of fans seem to hate it, especially because some of the best performances occurred on that streaming service, Paramount Plus. And apparently when you go to Paramount Plus to play it, if you have access to it, you can't fast forward easily. You have to sit there and watch everything to get to the section where if you want to watch Jennifer Holiday reprise her and I am telling you I'm not going performance from Dreamgirls, you got to sit through all this stuff. And it's not available online like almost every other performance would be in years past. You can't find a clip on YouTube. Because Paramount Plus isn't making it available. And people are like, please, for the love of God, make this available. We want to watch it. And they don't want to pay five or six or eight dollars just to access Paramount Plus to watch that one performance. So people used to think putting those clips online helped promote the show and show, oh, look what a great show it was. The show has already happened. So I'm not quite sure. Do they really think someone's going to, you know, subscribe to Paramount Plus a week after the show just to watch a clip? Maybe it's time to like make that stuff available. I don't know. I think a three hour thing on streaming and then two hours where you, be, you know, this was a weird year. So I don't think you can, uh, you know, you had a different task for the Tonys in prime time. But the fact is nobody watched 2.6 million people watched the Tony Awards on CBS in the overnight. That's the lowest by far in history. It's half of last year's extremely low rated 5.4 million. But guess what? It's the fall. And they were up against the NFL and fall TV premieres rather than airing in June when all they faced are reruns. So, well, and, and, and then their marketing was me turning on the television and going, wait, is that the Tonys? Well, like, it's, it's harder to break through the, you know, if you cared about the Tonys, you should have known. Um, it's hard to break through the cloud. You probably don't watch CBS very much, do you? No, I do not. Right. So there you go. But the awards, the news there is that for the first time in a while, a big budget splashy musical won the top prize. We've had a decade of a lot of small loving wins like Hades Town and Fun Home and all these small little arty shows that have proven successful big hits on Broadway, but they weren't the big rolls of the dice. This year, we knew a big fat musical would win because Jagged Little Pill, Tina and Moulin Rouge were the only nominees and Moulin Rouge won it all. 
uh, in best play was slave play was shut out. The most nominated play ever received no wins, but the wow. people who, the people who loved it, loved it, but it wasn't universally embraced. I was not a big fan of the show. I respected it, but I wasn't a big fan. I, I may not have voted for it. I might've voted for something else. The winner was the inheritance. And before people say, Oh, look, they're not Tony's so white, not making a big, well, guess what? The Inheritance was written by Matthew Lopez. He became the first Latin or Hispanic playwright to win the top prize of Tony for best play. So you know what? That's a diverse choice, too. It's a more comforting, less confrontational choice. You know, a lot of gay characters. Broadway loves gay. But, you know, still, it's a step forward. Plus, I, I loved it when uh, the cast of Tina uh, serenaded uh, the Moulin Rouge cast and crew with, uh, you're simply the best. You're simply the best. <laughs> right. That was that was Since cute. One. Yeah, See? exactly. Yeah. And it's I'm, ba of, I'm back on my, my good joke bandwagon. Oh, you're doing great. And speaking of uh, progress in social justice, the Dramatist Guild, who represent playwrights, they have created an inclusion rider for their writers to include in contracts where it calls for the people making a show to look and cast people in diverse areas all throughout a show, not just on stage, but behind the scenes as well. So it's a little progress right there. Well, I, I guess uh, I, I'm trying to figure out some way to get us uh, Just into say big it's deal time for Big Deal or Big Whoop. Oh, well, then if you've said Big Deal or Big Whoop, then it <laughs> must be time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines and entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story. Well, you can't keep a good doctor down. And few doctors are as good as Doctor Who. And you might be asking, Doctor Who? Doctor yes, Who. that's right. Yeah, the long-running hero of the iconic British series. The show is exhausted creatively, and some pleaded with the BBC to give it a rest already. Instead, we can expect a few TV movies in 2022, followed by the return of showrunner Russell T. Davies in 2023. Now, Davies was the creator of Queer as Folk, and the recent HBO miniseries, It's a Sin, both heavy on sexy gay action, by the way. So he wasn't really the most likely savior of the family-friendly franchise, but save it he did, arguably taking the show to higher heights than ever. And now Davies will be back again to inject the doctor with some new energy and smarts. Uh, you know, see, see what we did there? Inject mm -hmm. doctor. Mm -hmm. see, oh, inject. Like, oh, vaccines. Yes. Get back vac Vaccine joke there. Yeah. A big deal or big whoop? Uh, I guess it's a big deal. I mean, if you were going to keep going... He's the guy you like to see in charge. Hopefully he can rethink it really well, get a great doctor and, and, and run with it. And I thought, oh, if only he could take a break. Russell, take a break. But I was reminded that this is the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who in 2023. It debuted in 1963, actually uh, delayed for a few minutes because of news about the assassination of President Kennedy in the UK, a fun little fact there. Um, so Doctor Who has a long and venerable history. I guess they see the 60th anniversary as one worth promoting and they weren't willing to miss it by waiting a few years. I wish they'd waited for the 65th anniversary. Let us miss the doctor, but Russell T. Davies in charge, that makes me feel a little better. Now the Mouse House and Scarlett Johansson have kissed. Oh, gross. Oh, they've kissed and made up. I'm sorry, they've kissed and made up. Uh, thanks to a hefty settlement to Johansson. Now, you might recall the talented actor sued Uncle Walt after her franchise-launching Black Widow played in both theaters and, conveniently, on Disney+, Plus, cheating the star out of an expected hefty payday and box office bonuses. Johansson sued for an extra $50 million, although I thought it was $80 million, on top of her $20 million salary, 
And some claim she gets $40 million out of this settlement. So one wonders why Disney felt the need to mock and belittle the actor in the first place. So is this a big deal? Or a big whoop, and I don't know that that anything is leaked about the settlement. But go well, ahead. that was one deadline I think claimed to report that it was forty million dollars. So no, we don't have official numbers, of course. Though they did officially say, "Ah, we love her, and we're looking forward to uh, working with Scarlett on Tower of Terror, a, a film project they'd announced right before Black Widow was happening." So they want to make nice to her again. I think she's just producing on that one. But you tell me, is this a big deal? I feel like my take is I'm going to answer before I ask you that. This sort of problem will never arise again. Every agent and lawyer and, and, and manager is saying, making sure that their contracts are more specific down the road. So no one's going to get screwed this way again, where they didn't have some caveat about if you do release it on streaming the same time, then X, Y, and Z. So this just seems like a one-off because it's an old way of doing business and no actor or talent is going to fall for this again. But what do you think? I think you're absolutely right. Um, I also think that... Uh, you know, the buyouts, which is what this is, uh, for a, you know, a, a streaming first strategy, uh, never would have been $60 million for Scarlett Johansson. If they, if they had just if come to a deal with her beforehand and said, be. hey, look, let's do this. Oh, no, no, no. Like if they had said, we're going to make Black Widow, we're going to make it for streaming, uh, maybe we'll put it in theaters. They never would have said, and we'll pay you $60 million. Well, but, well, they never well but they weren't making it for streaming. They were making it for theaters with a big right. fat budget. Nobody's making $200 million for streaming right. unless it's a long going, long running series like The Lord of the Rings. Right. And I think that a, a lot of uh, talent was hoping that she'd take it to them and like go all well, the way to she court. Did. She did take it to them. But the, they, but they the reality a bunch is. Of cash. The reality is this was never going to see the inside of a courtroom. This was yeah. never going to trial. This was we never, never going to get to see Disney's books. Right. But knowing that, why the hell did they treat her, you know, piss off everybody in Hollywood, every creative talent, every woman with their behavior? That is a well, huge, I think they, somebody needs to lose their job if it wasn't just Bob Chapek personally. Yeah. And it very well may have been. Right. I will say that, uh, you know, I don't know that the CEO is going out there of a of a multi billion dollar public company and just releasing statements like that. No, he, I he do, but he approved it or whatever. If it didn't come from him angrily saying, "Hey, this is what we need to say," if somebody did this and he signed off on it and thought regrets it, but whoever gave you that advice was wrong, knowing that you're not going to open up your books and you will strike a deal with her ultimately. Of course, that's what you're going to do. We knew it, and yet they also vilified her, vilified. Somebody had worked on all their movies and a woman and made it sound like she was a greedy bastard and infuriated everybody in Hollywood. That's just bad business. Yeah. And I think they were a little shocked that uh, that it blew back. Uh, not that that well between that and the fact that she said oh by the way i'm gonna make this a little personal mr chapek and mr Iger. i'm gonna remind people that you guys will actually be enriched by how many new no, but that's not personal that's a fact correct but she actually you know name checked them in the lawsuit and i think that they were kind of pissed at that and that was the result of it and no, in the no, end now you're back. blaming her for pointing out the fact that they are profiting mightily from well, disney plus her. She, and she taking is money from her she wasn't making it personal she was pointing out the fact that yeah, they I agree. made big bonuses right that's not personal she's saying you're getting big bucks because it's on disney plus and i'm getting screwed out of money that's not personal. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. I think they were shocked at that, and that was their response. Why and are they shocked? I, I don't. don't know. Know. I don't understand why it's shocking that she would point out a simple fact. 
or they weren't prepared for it, I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I will say this. Alan Bergman, who is the head of the uh, motion picture studio over there at Disney, this is where experience pays off because he basically, uh, before this settlement was agreed to, he uh, kind of finagled the whole Tower of Terror deal. He was not going to make an announcement until they could they could squeeze that in to kind of point out that like everything was smoothed over and, oh, by the way, kind of secure her for uh, the Tower of Terror. Right. Very smart. Very, oh, very smart. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, uh, the Super Bowl halftime show, big deal or big whoop? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, now, now uh, in a sign that for a new generation, classic rock has been replaced by classic hip-hop, Dr. Dre will take the stage at the Super Bowl halftime show. He'll be joined by Snoop Dogg, Eminem, Mary J. Blige, and Kendrick Lamar. Oh, Michael, how naive you are. Remember <laughs> when you said the Super Bowl had a serious artist problem and major acts may not want to play the halftime show anymore? Well, you also said the same thing about, uh, you know, who might host the uh, Oscars. And you did prove right about that. Nobody wants to host the Oscars. But, hey, uh, is this a big deal or a big whoop? I think it's a, it's, it's a big whoop in terms of, well, there goes social justice, you know. What do you mean? Well, I mean, you know, this, the, remember, two, like we said, two, three years ago, nobody was going to do the Super Bowl halftime show. Well, that felt pretty quickly, right? That was a bended knee and a Jennifer Lopez slash Shakira hot minute ago. Apparently, the lure of a huge audience just makes it too much to resist. You know, they couldn't get it anybody is, yeah. a few years ago. And now, after the weekend and the two ladies, everybody's like, sure, we'll do it. It's a, it's a, it's a sad day in terms of, you know, the NFL has not suddenly gotten more socially conscious. They're not doing a better job with their players. They did drum, uh, you know, Kaepernick out of the league for daring to speak up on the social justice issue in a way that has spread throughout the country and indeed the world. And high uh, school, they do college, pro, sports of all types, taking a knee, bending a knee all over the world now to point out the problems that need to be fixed. Yeah, we're just playing well, a game. And racism. Well, we also care about the, our world. In the, in the, you know, they've painted end racism in the end zone. Does that count? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Big deal. Uh, the COVID pandemic. Big deal. No, I'm kidding. The COVID pandemic, obviously, it's a disaster, of course, but at least some good news has come of it. For one thing, the shutdown encouraged a growing movement in libraries around the U.S. getting rid of late fees. And late fees discourage people and those with unsettled housing from ever checking out a book. Okay, so that's so pandemic comes, libraries close, books can't be returned. They said, hey, you know what? Keep your books. The total fines collected invariably add up to well less than 1% of a library's revenue. So the money is kind of meaningless and creates barriers to the library for people who need them most. When the shutdown happened, as I just said, many libraries simply said, hold on to your books. Don't bring them back. And don't give us your COVID, okay? We'll, we'll let you know when to Keep come back. Keep your COVID. Keep your COVID. Yeah, yeah. Then with a partial reopening, late fees were often suspended. And now hundreds of libraries and library systems around the country are dumping them altogether. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a big deal. It really created a barrier for a lot of people. You wouldn't think about it, but it does. People get scared when they don't have much money. They don't want a $20 late fee. So they just end up not getting books at all. And recognizing that, seeing how little money was coming from late fees, how unimportant it was financially, but how it was stopping people from accessing books and knowing you could do other things like saying, well, you can't check out more books until you bring that book back. And that's basically going to work because most people want to take out books and they want to bring them back when they're due. They're not looking to try and game the system or steal a bunch of books. So that's not going to happen anyway. There's 
perfectly good barriers you can put in place to keep that from happening. And I think it's a great, a great change. Something bad happened. They looked at things and you know what, actually they rethought stuff, which is a great thing to do in a time of crisis to rethink everything and not take for granted the way you've been doing business. And of course, libraries really benefited from having eBooks huge ebook explosion with people able to access books without having to go to the library physically. And now Congress is looking into the exorbitant rates being charged to libraries for ebook licensing by publishers. So that is a good thing because libraries have been paying a huge penalty just for being libraries. You know, they've not been doing anything any different than they've ever done. They loan books out single copy by single copy, but publishers have been screwing it to them and seeing them as the enemy rather than a public service that helps reading and, and book publishing in general very, very much. So hopefully that will get fixed as well. Now, in an interview with Goldman Sachs, the music label Warner Brothers mentioned it was grossing about $250 million in revenue from quote-unquote alternative sources. Alternative <laughs> you made it sound as, dirty. As, alternative as in what? <laughs> well, as in Facebook, which has been leveraging more music and TikTok and gaming and Peloton and the like, according to Music Business Worldwide, that means these alternative sources of revenue probably kick in more than $1 billion annually to the worldwide revenue of music, and they're just getting started. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, very big deal. NFTs, Peloton, TikTok, gaming and the like are only going to get bigger. So... That's really important. You know, we want to grow the subscription service price. We want to get more people worldwide subscribing and paying that monthly fee, but that's only going to grow so much. And we have to increase royalties for songwriters and for the artists and the people who play on albums. And so having another revenue stream really, really helps as long as the people who create the music are benefiting more than they are right now. So, and you know what? Digital is bigger than physical. Uh, that's true. Whether you're talking about music or movies and TV. We had a couple weeks ago, we talked about movies and TV, and you sort of mocked the idea of DVDs and Blu-ray. Well, guess what? Physical still matters, though. Uh, physical sales and rentals still amount to about $6 billion a year when you're looking at movies and television shows on DVD and Blu-ray. That's trending down. But if you're going to get excited by half a billion dollars in vinyl sales, let's not diss DVD and Blu-ray or NFTs. You know what? Money is money. Well, and when we're talking about money, the entertainment industry loves money. They and, do, uh, they, they do. They, and you know what? They talk about it's in time What's for that? inside baseball. I'm going to do it because you need to talk. It's where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. And this week, of course, one-time agent Sperling Reich is going to weigh in on CAA buying ICM. It's the biggest merger since WMA, William Morris, and Endeavor combined. And basically, we can say a little Agatha Christie not here, and then there were three, WMA, UTA, and CAA, three big agencies left. CAA has gobbled up number four, ICM. Now, the owners of CAA want to go public. They also own stakes in a lot of businesses, Univision, Spotify, Cirque du Soleil, Altel, uh, so many businesses that CAA being added to their, you know, ICM being added to CAA's roster hasn't you know even been a blip on the radar for them. What will be the result? More boutiques? Who knows? But Sperling, tell us the history of agent consolidation on why we should care about this and what it means. Well, if you look at it, actually, you're absolutely right. That is exactly what's going to happen. There will be more boutique agents, which will then in turn slowly become bigger agents because uh, does Doctor Who have a time machine? Can he yes, go back in time? the TARDIS. Okay. 
the tar- that's what I thought. Uh, and I don't know why I've never gotten into Doctor Who. Everybody loves it. I've never gotten into it. But anyway, I'm going to get into the TARDIS. I'm going to take you back to 1975 when William Morris. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh, that must be a, a TARDIS thing. Um, <laughs> anyway, in 1975, the William Morris Agency was the biggest agency in Hollywood. They represented everybody. And Ron Meyer, Michael Ovitz, Roland Perkins, Mike Rosenfeld, and uh, Bill Haber, they all left to go start a new company, a boutique agency, Creative Artists Agency. Well, by 1995, 20 years later, it was the most powerful agency in the world. Bar none. They, they, Michael Ovitz was constantly on the, the top power lists. He was negotiating deals for MCA uh, Universal to be purchased by, you know, Seagram's and all these other companies. Uh, he left, actually. So did Ron Meyer. Ron Meyer left to run Universal. Mike Ovitz uh, left to run Disney for all of about a year before he got kind of booted out. Uh, Richard Lovett and five young Turks. They were known as the Young Turks. Oh, no, Richard Lovett was the head of CAA, wasn't he? Well, yes, but they were all together. They were all like ah, known see, as yeah. the Five Young Turks. He actually was the one who sent out the email that said, uh, when Michael Ovitz announced his leaving, he sent out an email that day and said, uh, I think tomorrow morning, given the news that we've just heard, we all need to meet in the screening room. And he walked in and took over the agency. Yeah. He just went to the head of the room and said, here's I'm what we need man. to do. I'm in charge. Yeah, and, and everybody said, we don't want to do it. Richard, have fun. Uh, and Brian Lord, Kevin Huvane, David O'Connor, Jay Maloney. Uh, Jay Maloney is you know, now deceased. David O'Connor has retired. But Brian Lord and Kevin Huvane are still around. And Richard Lovett is still running the company. Now, in 1995, while Ovitz and Meyer were leaving CAA. And Lovett was seizing company, power. Yeah, Ari Emanuel uh, was telling... Uh, and I can't remember whether it was, yeah, I guess it was Ari. Well, there's a whole bunch of Rick Rosen, Tom Strickler, but David They don't care Greenblatt. about their names. They don't care about the names of these agents. Nobody cares. And Ari Emanuel's huge. Him, he's Every- fine. Yes, Ari Emanuel, a bunch of, he said, we want to leave CA. It's too big. We're going to start Endeavor. No, no, no. They left ICM in the middle of the night. Oh, right, right, right. ICM, yeah. In the and, middle and, they let, and they created Endeavor, like overnight. And they were caught stealing the, their client files. That's how they were caught. Right. <laughs> the next day in the headlines, you know, it was the big news. Uh, by 1996, Patrick Weitzel, who was at CAA, by the way. You're making time, my head spin. CAA so got Patrick, really big so, and, 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 and CAA got huge. CAA broke off from William Morris, became huge. Then people left ICM because it was so big and they formed Endeavor. Then Endeavor got really big and merged with William Morris. And now it's William Morris well, Endeavor, right? Yeah, but but William Morris, well, Endeavor merged, quote unquote, with William Morris, but they really took it over because Ari Emanuel now runs the place. And right, he, okay. And that's, that's okay. he bought it, basically. Yeah, okay. Uh, pa- Patrick Weitzel was a key figure in that. He was at CA, but of course, the Young Turks didn't let him in. And so he left. He joined Endeavor. Now Endeavor's huge. Uh, but Endeavor, as you pointed out before we began recording, Michael, Endeavor is this huge company that went public recently. They own everything. They own William Morris, which is like the smallest part of their business as an agency. They also own a sports marketing firm, IMG. They own uh, the U- Ultimate Fight Club. Is that what the UFC, Ultimate Fight Club? Your favorite, Michael, the, the Professional Bull Riding Woo-hoo! Association. So basically, and- just like this company is now the smallest part of the bigger conglomerate's concerns. CA is now the little guy at a much bigger company with the, uh, with ICM being the subdivision of CAA, which is CA itself is not that much of an important thing at the company that owns them, right? 
Right. T- well, no, ICM is going to go away. ICM was in right, 1995, right, right. Right. number two. But now there's UTA, there's William Morris Endeavor, CA. Right. So well, now, is, you, yeah. So, so this so has always happened. Companies get really big. People break off and form a boutique agency to get out on their own. They can't get up high enough. They can't get enough power or the people in power aren't moving aside or they just aren't happy and they'd rather be at a smaller company. So they break off and they form a new company. Then often that new company gets really big and then the cycle starts itself all over again. So here we are today with ICM being gobbled up by CAA. And what's going to be the result? We have two of the three big agencies connected to companies that are looking to go public or are public, right? Right. Well, first of all, Endeavor is public. Uh, right. Or I said T- looking to go public or are public. Yeah. yeah. TPG is looking to go public. Again, as you, as you pointed out, you know, this is such a small part of their business. It's just another investment. Right. Uh, but if for you're CAA, a director, it's really important you're a because- director or you're an actor or you're a writer, do you want your agent concerned about stock options and quarterly profits? Or do you want them concerned about your long-term career and mapping out your career? Because suddenly your agent's going to have pressure, like, hey, you haven't, you haven't delivered anything this quarter, rather than recognizing that filmmaking is not a widget business and you don't have consistent quarterly stuff. So you have to worry about the long-term career of what's best for your actor, director, or writer. You represent James Cameron. Guess what? He hasn't produced anything in years. But it's still a valuable and important part of your time because when he does deliver, it's going to be Avatar 2, 3, and 4. Well, I don't think that if you're CAA, you're getting that kind of pressure. Now, at Endeavor, that's a different story because William Morris, it's Endeavor itself is public, which William Morris Endeavor, there's a reason they call it that. Uh, that's a different story there. I don't think you... You want, and then that was the big question about Endeavor going public. Like you do realize this is a very cyclical business, and you cannot be worried about these. Uh, you can't expect consistent returns from every person, right? And, and every quarter, right? You can't. You know, one division might be up, the other division might be down. One division's paying for the other division, then the next year it's flipped. So who's going to win big? It's going to be Gersh. APA I, paradigm. Well, no, I think I think CAA will wind up with a great book department. They're going to wind up with some really good showrunners, which is what ICM had. They had some great showrunners in Shonda Rhimes, Vince Gilligan, Bill Lawrence. They had the best book department in the business. Uh, they had some good agents. Uh, and, and by book, some you mean publishing? Agents, like they had people with good connections in the publishing world to represent the and, top writers and books that can be turned into movies and TV shows and stuff correct. like that. Okay, correct. And, and you know what's going to wind up happening is some of those agents at ICM, CA is going to say, look, we don't need you. We don't need motion picture agents. We've got our own. Okay. We will take some TV agents maybe, but all those agents will either go and become managers. So you're going to see an influx of managers. Mm-hmm. You're also going to see a lot of agents going to other agencies. Like you mentioned, Michael Gersh, uh, APA, Paradigm, Paradigm, ironically, is in the old ICM building, right? Now. <laughs> that's where, uh, and and uh, so that's what's going to wind up happening. F- taking with them, by the way, some of the maybe not A-list clients, but B-list clients right now or lesser known clients. But guess what? You know how Paradigm goes from being Paradigm of today to p- Paradigm where they are as big as CAA? They represent clients that aren't necessarily big today, but then are Jennifer Lawrence or Emma Stone or Sharon Stone you know, in the Sharon Stone of the 1980s and 1990s. So in other words, that's what's going to happen. As you say, it becomes a cycle. Yeah, but 
the difference now is that C is now tied up into a company that is soon going to be worried about stock options and quarterly profits. And you're sure the top guys at CA are going to expect or want to have a big payday if their owners go public and you know well, make a lot of money. Have their, they've already gotten their big payday, actually, mm-hmm. and that was always a concern. They always when had bigger t- paydays. <laughs> well, right, but they but they were actually when TPG came in and bought them a, seven years ago. That was the big concern. You've already gotten your big payday. Why are you still here? Why are you like? What do you really care about now? And what Brian Lord did initially, everybody thought, oh, Brian Lord speaking on, on behalf of Scarlett Johansson, as you say, going back to that Scarlett Johansson thing, saying, oh, how dare you go after a woman? You would never say that no, to no, a man. You're that's going, right. Go, you're going after her personally and you shouldn't, you're kind of screwing her uh, financially. Well, guess what? What he was also doing, knowing that this deal was coming down the pike, he knew that this ICM deal was coming down the pike where they would merge. He was also telegraphing to the guilds and to talent, hey, don't worry. When this happens, we still have your back. We are still representation first. That's what we care about. So we are going to go to bat for you, whether you're Scarlett Johansson or, well, actually, if you're not Scarlett Johansson, I don't know. You might actually want to uh, think about where you're being represented. So it's not that agencies need to be bigger than ever. It's that this is a cycle. And now there's a new opportunity for small and mid-sized agencies to flourish and provide great personalized service for people who don't want to feel like a cog in a machine. Right. And I shouldn't, I should also point out, this is also about Disney consuming Fox, having to negotiate with giant streaming services. And guess what? Now you got a little bit more leverage. You've taken a a potential competitor out of the market and you got a little bit more leverage so that when they come and and make a deal with Chris Pratt for the next Guardians of the Galaxy, guess what? You're not calling ICM anymore. Now you're calling Brian Lord. Now, what do you think? Maybe I should cut that deal with Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, I think ICM was pretty able to negotiate with the major studios. They weren't pushing them around and kicking oh, sand in their face. Well, so I don't no. think you need to get bigger and no, bigger. No, no, this is CAA, CAA trying to do that. I understand, but you said they had to get bigger so they could negotiate, and I was arguing the opposite, that no, oh. the number four agency could perfectly well negotiate. So can Gersh and Paradigm and the others. They can hold their own. They're not getting treated like dirt because they're not a giant behemoth. I don't think that's necessary. You got the right talent, the right project. You're going to get a good deal. Well, one thing to also point out, another thing to point out is that they were, ICM was big in packaging. And of course, packaging is going away. And a lot of back-end syndication deals, they're not around anymore. Now you, just get a lot of, now you get a lot of money up front. Right, exactly. Well, that's okay too, right? Uh, I, I wonder though, you know, again, is what was what was more lucrative, getting the syndication deal a la Seinfeld or getting, do you think you'd get $100 million up front the way Seinfeld did for syndication? Right, I don't ex- think except so. Except 95% of all shows don't run into syndication and massive success like Law & Order and Seinfeld and Friends. That That's not, right. or The Office. So actually getting more money up front maybe to the benefit of most shows. And the idea of getting to syndication at 100 episodes is just not the game most artists want to play anymore. Not everybody's We've talked about that, actually. Wanting that, to get that, a like, billion-dollar payday. If you want to have four, three seasons and, and 60 episodes or 35 episodes, that can happen now. You can be creatively satisfied, make really good money, and you know they feel they've got to pay you more up front because there's no back end. Great. And, you know, what we've talked about is the fact that, okay, you've paid a lot up front, but what if it's a failure? You've just paid, like, for instance, the Hugh Jackman movie, the name of which I have completely forgotten. They had to pay him out over at Warner Brothers when they went to streaming. The City Hall movie or? 
the the one about about running for that was a diff that wasn't part of that uh, deal. No, it was like just in like August or July or something like that. It came out. It made two million dollars and went away. And you know, essentially, people said you know the big winner there was Hugh Jackman because he got paid his bonuses, his box office bonuses, without actually having to make any box office. You don't mean bad education. Yeah, uh, that was before n- that, and that went that was n- picked up at a festival and went straight to. You mean the New Mutants? No, he wasn't a big piece of that that was archival he was in free guy and reminiscence uh but that hasn't reminiscence is that the movie you mean because maybe that's it for hugh jackman um that made 15 million dollars and came out in august yeah maybe it was uh, maybe it was reminiscence is that an hbo movie yes it's a warner brothers movie so i guess that's what you you were thinking of yeah and that just goes to show you how these Streaming movies come and go, just like Patty Jenkins said. You can't even remember them. And some people come and go because it's time for our obituary section. Did you get everything? How do you like that softball? How did you like that softball? Oh, that was beautiful. A little breaking news that's quite sad. Emmy-winning makeup designer Mark Pilcher has just died at the age of 53. He just won an Emmy for his hair and makeup work on the blockbuster TV series Bridgerton. Now, sadly, he's died from COVID. Uh, Your first question, of course, will be answered. Yes, he was fully vaccinated. He had no underlying health conditions, which doesn't mean the COVID, you know, the vaccine doesn't work. It means it's not magic. It's not pure 100 percent protection. And, you know, variants get more lethal, more dangerous. And so this is a pandemic. Mask up. Take it seriously. For God's sakes, you do want to get vaccinated because it will help you be one of the few unlikely people like Mark Pilcher. So even doing everything right doesn't mean you're going to be always perfectly safe, but the science is there and it works. So it's a, it's a good thing that he did everything he could, but it doesn't mean there's magical protection. So uh, very, very sad news. Also sad news for director Roger Michel of Notting Hill fame. He died at the age of 65. Uh, you've Didn't he also like direct uh, Love Actually? Was that Roger Michelle? No, that was not. That was Richard Curtiz, I believe, wasn't it? Oh yes, yeah. I get those two mixed up all the time. Well, well, Notting Hill was sort of an, uh, a philosophical sequel to Four Weddings and a Funeral, which Richard Curtiz wrote and directed. Then he wrote Notting Hill, but Roger Michelle directed it. So he was born in South Africa. Michelle was, but he seemed British to his bones to most people around the world. His biggest commercial hit by far was the Julie Roberts Hugh Grant romantic comedy Notting Hill. At one time, it was the highest grossing British film of all time. Not adjusting for inflation. It was even bigger than James Bond. Horse and Hound to the rescue. But his resume is better than that. Uh, he did theater, TV, you name it. And one genuine classic. In theater, he worked at the RSC and the National and lots of shows. On TV and film, he had a long-term collaboration with writer Hanif Qureshi beginning with my of my beautiful laundrette fame they did the miniseries the buddha of suburbia a big hit in the uk a drama with a young daniel craig who would become james bond he was wooing a mother and a daughter at the same time that was a hot little film and a jim broadbent charmer called le weekend but his greatest artistic triumph came in 1995 the year of jane austen not one not two not three but four great adaptations of Jane Austen came out in 1995. The landmark Pride and Prejudice miniseries with Colin Firth and three films, Emma Thompson's Sense and Sensibility, Alicia Silverstone in Clueless, which is a remake of Emma, and Michelle's adaptation of Persuasion, starring Siren Hines and Amanda Root. It's a great film. Almost nobody even tackles Persuasion. It's probably the least adapted of those four novels by Jane Austen. And it's just a lovely, lovely film. Really good. Well worth checking out. Well, uh, and another award winner, Oscar nominated film editor. Well, I guess yeah, another award, an award winner. He got award. He's not. He got an Oscar nomination. He's an award winner. He didn't get the statue, but you know, he got honored with the nomination. 
Right. John Gregory, film editor. He died at 77. Yes. And he worked uh, with, uh, I guess, playwright Martin McDonough on In Bruges. Uh, and I love that movie. Yeah. Uh, and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, which uh, that's where he got that Oscar nomination from. Uh, he also had a long-running relationship with Mike Newell, the filmmaker. And, uh, you know, I guess he did Donnie Brasco and Four Weddings and a Funeral. Speak of the Devil, Four Weddings and a Funeral, yeah. Yeah, and he uh, forked, uh, he forked, he worked for 30 years with director Mike Lee on, you name it, High Hopes and uh, Secrets and Lies, which won the Palme d'Or, of course, and Peter Lou, which uh, was just last year, Mr. Turner another year. I mean, the guy did everything. Yeah, they worked together for a long, long time. A great collaboration, a great relationship. Also another big name, TV directing legend Jay Sandrich. If you grew up in the 70s and 80s like I did, you've seen this name a thousand times. Yes, TV is a writer's medium, but certainly per certain directors have the gift of getting great work out of people quickly and efficiently week after week. That's why they keep getting work. You think of people like James Burroughs and Jay Sandrich, who died at 89. He got 11 Emmy nominations. He won the Emmy six times. And you can thank his genes. His dad was director Mark Sandrich, who died way too young at the age of 44, but not before directing numerous hit films like Holiday Inn and five Astaire Rogers films, including Shall We Dance and Top Hat, two of the great movie musicals of all time. But Jay did his dad proud. He began as a second assistant director on I Love Lucy. I love this. He got the job, in a way, because she recognized his name. When her first job, Lucille Ball, was on a film directed by his dad, Mark Sandrich, and he was really patient with her. She was nervous, flustered, and he really took time with her, and she always appreciated that. And so when his son popped up, he got a little job on I Love Lucy. Then he graduated to producing on The Andy Griffith Show and Get Smart. Like James Burroughs, who he mentored, he was a go-to guy for pilot episodes. He was an assistant on the pilots for The Dick Van Dyke Show and The Andy Griffith Show. And he directed the pilots for, brace yourself, The Bob Newhart Show, WKRP in Cincinnati, Soap, Benson, Night Court, The Golden Girls, on which he reportedly suggested that Rue McClanahan and Betty White swap roles very successfully. Oh, and he shot the pilot for The Cosby Show. Oh, and the greatest sitcom of all time, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Mic Drop. In yeah, I mean, think think about it. That is think crazy. About crazy. And these aren't just, oh, he directed the show. Because a lot of people direct di episodes. different episodes of those shows. He directed the pilots of all of those shows. And that's really that crucial. Because you bring the cast together, you set the chemistry, you set the tone, you have to establish the show right away. In fact, though, he did direct most of the Mary Tyler Moore show, most of the episodes, the first two seasons of Soap, and half of the Cosby show's 200 episodes, including major input on casting of the pilot of that show. Uh, that's, that's just monumental, and he should be very proud of his work on the Cosby show. Whatever horrific things Bill Cosby did in his private life, that's a great and funny show. He was inducted into the TV Hall of Fame in 2020. 2020. What were they waiting for? That's what I want to know. He was he was 89. And they said 88. Yeah, okay, we'll put him in. <laughs> and here's a little sad one. Disney child star Tommy Kirk dies at the age of 79. He was the first to play a Hardy boy. In this case, Joe Hardy in a serial for the Mickey Mouse Club. It's actually quite good with Tim Considine as Frank, the older brother. Big fame followed. And then he started in films like Swiss Family Robinson, Old Yeller, The Shaggy Dog, The Absent-Minded Professor with Fred McMurray, who he didn't get along with at all. But when Kirk realized he was gay and Uncle Walt got wind of the 21-year-old's sexual orientation, his career was pretty much over. He had some hits elsewhere like Pajama Party or Beach, yeah, Pajama Party, but 
Uh, he then had a drug bust with barbiturates and marijuana, which at the time was such a badge of shame. And he really doesn't blame other studios or Disney for not wanting to work with him. He says he blew up his own career. So he made pace with it. And much later, Disney gave him a Disney Legends Award. So that's cool. But when he came out privately, basically, he was estranged from his family for the rest of his life. So how did we find out he died? Thanks to Paul Peterson, the child actor on The Donna Reed Show, who has devoted a lot of his adult life to championing the causes of child actors and the rights and protections they deserve and need. He has a he has a uh, an organization, a nonprofit called A Minor Consideration, and he stays friends with and reaches out to all these child actors who sometimes get abandoned and forgotten, like Tommy Kirk. So, you know, good for Paul Peterson and nice to know Tommy Kirk made peace with everything and, you know, had a good uh, had a good rapport at the end with what his career meant. Well, look, we have a ton of uh, just more two names more. here. Just two people, three people. Dir- director Melvin Van Peebles. Who, yeah, who are you? He got a lot more attention than I expected, which is great. I think that's a sign of there are a lot more diverse people in media. There's a lot more rep- rec- recognition of the important work being done in in stuff that is not as high profile as it used to be. He did Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, which revolutionized independent cinema. He was also on Broadway, and his broad one of his Broadway musicals was s- slated already to be reintroduced on Broadway. A revival is set. He just had a box set from Criterion. It's the 50th anniversary of Sweet Sweetback, and it was back in theaters. You can read a lot more about him in our show notes. He has some cool stuff. Japanese comic book legend uh, Takao Saito died at the age of 84. He revolutionized mangas and how they were made and how big they could be. And pretty much you can figure he's responsible, as some say, for the fact that Japan is a country where adults read comic books. His Golgo 13 and other books really made that. And really the fact that Japan is so known for manga and anime, that's really kind of due to him. And then finally, Sarah Dash, one of the three members of LaBelle, died at the age of 76. Sperling's like, who? Lady Marmalade. You know that song, right? Yes. Yes. Nona Hendricks and Patti LaBelle and Sarah Dash in the hugely popular, hugely successful group LaBelle. They broke up. They got back together. I interviewed Nona Hendricks just so I could get tickets to see LaBelle in their reunion concert. There it is. It's the holidays. It's almost Christmas. I'm leaving New York City the next day. LaBelle is performing at the Apollo. Is there a better oh place? A better place no. to see a reunion of this legendary group with three women who know how to bring it and sing it and ready to show each other. You know, none of them is going to get outshone by the other. Plus, they want to bring it to the crowd. Plus, they want to reclaim the legacy that LaBelle deserves. And they're performing at the Apollo. I go with my... How was the show? Oh, my God. I went with my friend Dave Cohen. We go to the Apollo. The buzz is... People are so excited. They come out and they're known for big, elaborate stage shows with crazy costumes and lots of great stuff. They come out in these crazy outfits and they just tear it up. First song, they're just like on fire you're like oh my god they are not, they tear it down right away first song crowd goes crazy second song they build it up they tear it down again unbelievable third song amazing my head is exploding it's so exciting the atmosphere is electric and then the power goes out the power what? goes out at the apollo we're like what the power goes yeah. out we mill around they're like we're figuring it out the power's out on the block it's not just us we'll figure it out an hour later, we've been drinking and whatever. People are staying around. They're like, we can't do it. We can't come back on. We're going to have to delay the show and reschedule for another night. We're like, no. 
They had to reschedule for several days later. I'm leaving town. I have to give my tickets to Dave Cohen so he can go see LaBelle a few nights later. I'm weeping. I'm, they were so good. And he went to see them a few nights later. I asked what the show was like, and he says, you don't want to know. <laughs> it's, it's better I not tell you. <laughs> he never told me. He's like, you, you don't want to know. <laughs> it's like they were so good. So LaBelle, I never saw them, and now I never will. Well, Dave Cohen, if you're listening, you can actually write to Michael and let him know what that show is like by writing to <laughs> dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. Oh, in fact, please, people, do call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox, although Facebook is down right now and you would think the world has lost its ever-loving mind. <laughs> but uh, in any case, you know what? All that information is on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find ways to subscribe to us Everywhere they give podcasts away for free, iTunes, Google, Spotify, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher. Uh, I believe we're also on uh, TuneIn Radio. I mean, if you can't find us, let us know by, by writing to us or calling us and, and letting us know. Again, that information is on showbizsandbox.com, which is where you'll find links to all of the stories we talked about on today's episode. The music you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website. Who is MGMT.com? And Michael Giltz can be found online. And every week, he's got a new and exciting website for us. What is it this week, Michael? This week, it's a aminorconsideration.org. Go, Paul Peterson. And, and that actually is a website. But you know what? You can't find any of Michael's coverage, maybe, of the entertainment industry on that particular website. You know what? Head on over to michaelgiltz.com, where all of his work can be found. And some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. Bye.